Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, as last week, I'm joined by two guests on the podcast. Uh, the first of these is uh, Max King, who, after many years in fund management, most latterly at uh, Investec, is now probably best known to uh, investment trust fans as a regular columnist in Money Week, as well as being a non-exec director of a couple of trusts as well. And then after that, we have a segment on what's happening in private equity with Andrew Lister, who runs a, a fund of private investments for Aberdeen, the big fund management group. But as usual, we're going to kick off by talking about the markets. This week, uh, it's been a short week, obviously, uh, perhaps just as well. It has been a short week because it's been a pretty uh, poor week for the investment trust sector. We've had four days in succession of uh, declines and following the big sell-off in Wall Street uh, last week and continuing this week. So, Max, what is your take on what's happening in the market? Obviously, it's pretty grim out there at the moment. We're recording this on a Friday afternoon, waiting to see what Wall Street does today. But uh, what's your take on what's going on now? Well, what's happening is that equity markets, and in particular Wall Street, are following very closely the US bond market. US bond yields rose from the 1st of January to the middle of June from, I think, 1.5% to 3.5%. And guess what? The S&P sold off pretty aggressively. Was it 17% uh, thereabouts? Then people decided that actually the Federal Reserve was on course to control inflation Bond yields fell back to a low of, I think, 2.6%, and the US stock market rallied pretty strongly. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen the US Treasury bond market sell off again, and as a result, the US market has sold off. So the equities are following the bond market pretty closely. And what the bond market is concerned about is inflation, not just inflation here and now, but inflation in the longer term. Obviously, a 10-year Treasury bond is dependent on inflation over 10 years, not just over one year. And although there are plentiful signs in the US that inflation is coming down, what they call the, I can't remember what they call it, but it's the gap between uh, conventional bonds and indexing bonds, uh, break-evens. Break-evens, yeah, inflation break-evens, yeah. They've gone up in the last few weeks from 2.3% to 2.6%. So bond investors are telling the Federal Reserve, you know what? We're not satisfied that you really committed on fighting inflation. And until we are, uh, bond yields are going up. It seems that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has taken notice of this. And that's why he's suddenly become more hawkish and reiterated his promise to raise interest rates. And I would guess that this is probably going to be enough with a bit of a time lag for US bond investors to relax. US bond yields will start coming down again. And that means that the equity markets will rally. So I think this is all down to the bond markets. And actually, investment trusts are just a slave of global markets. And all you need to watch in the morning is to see what the US bond yield is doing. That will tell you what's happening to the stock market. Okay, so it's a mug's game, as we all know, to make forecasts about the economy. Even more of a mug's game than making forecasts about uh, what's going to happen in financial markets over the short term. But uh, do you think there is a tension between if you like, bond investors fears that uh, we may be going into a, a nasty recession, set against their concerns about how hard the Fed is going to tackle inflation. So do you think that the Fed could go too far and they could overshoot? Or you're saying that actually it's all pretty under control in terms of expectations? Given the Fed has been too slack in the past, I think that now investors actually want the Fed to go, if anything, a bit too far 
to veer on the side of hawkishness. Uh, and I think it's uh, what Eddie Ardeni once called um, the era of the bond vigilantes is very much back. And that's um, exactly what's happening. Now, investors, funny enough, aren't that bothered about recession. Commentators tend to think they are. But as far as a typical investor is concerned, you get a recession. So what? Earnings are down for a year or two, then they bounce back. And we're long-term investors, so we're concerned about earnings not over this year or next year, but over the next 10 years. And I think investors can take a recession, provided it's not a particularly serious one, in their stride. What really scares them is inflation. And that means uh, pushes up long-term inflation uh, as evidenced by higher bond yields. So I think that uh, really the idea that um, averting a recession in the short term is going to help markets and uh, make investors happy is completely wrong. It's quite the opposite. What the markets really want is for the Federal Reserve in particular, and then hopefully the donkeys at the Bank of England to take note and really go for inflation. Well, I was going to come on to the issue of the UK, <laughs> and it's uh, rather... Uh how should we say, individual status in terms of those issues. But just before that, I mean, we've still got the Ukraine war going on. We've still got what's happening in the energy markets, the oil price and particularly gas prices, which are causing all these concerns, not least amongst politicians. Inflation isn't going to be fixed until Ukraine is fixed, essentially. There's going to be inflation through those kind of effects, quite apart from the underlying inflation, which you've been talking about as far as uh, the Fed's concerned. It won't be fixed, but I think there's a lot of help that you know, if you allow markets to take their courses, higher energy prices are going to curb demand and increase supply. And what the government needs to do, of course, is allow this to take its course, for example, through allowing fracking for the long term, for fracking, allowing nuclear power and encouraging more of the other types of renewable energy. The worst possible thing the government could do, I think, in these circumstances is to try and apply handouts to try and alleviate it in the short term and prevent that signal happening. So uh, we must hope the government doesn't do that. The worst thing the Bank of England can do is say, oh, we're so worried about the risk of a recession that we're not going to raise interest rates. The result, of course, as we've seen in the last month in the UK, is sterling's fallen by 5%. And guess what? That only comes through as higher inflation. So the Bank of England's lethargy in putting up rates is resulting in increasing inflation pressures. And the public and media opinion about energy prices threatens to make it worse. So I do think we've got particular problems in the UK, and I have to say in Europe, which need addressing. Uh, of course, we're going to have a new prime minister very shortly, next week, in fact. Do you think that uh, from your experience going back over a number of years, we don't make party political issues here, but I mean, do you think that uh, any of the things that the candidates have been talking about are actually likely to be achievable against the kind of market backdrop we've got at the moment? Well, I don't know. If half the things that Liz Truss says are achieved, that would be good news. And uh, But we've also got to hope that she achieves some things which she, for good reasons, doesn't really want to talk about in too much detail. For example, like um, perhaps a bit of stricter control on public spending. But I can understand why she hasn't been talking about that. But she does seem to be on the right wavelength in terms of letting market forces correct the problems. And I, and I worry a bit that uh, Rishi Sunak would have been continuation Boris Johnson, uh, which I think is what uh, most people worry about. But so I am hopeful that the UK can do a bit of a U-turn, but you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Of course, meantime, so far this year, the investment trust sector, at least the part of it that's in the FTSE all share, is down 16% or so. Discounts have widened out to, on average, you know, near 11%, something like that, against an average of 7% over the last year, and, and of course, much, much narrower 
in the recent past. But the UK market itself, of course, has proved pretty resilient uh, so far this year, down about 4%. So uh, despite all these issues that we have over here, partly that's because sterling is sinking, of course. What's your thoughts about that and the outlook for the, uh, the sector in the UK market? Well, as you say, uh, the weakness of sterling, particularly the 5% drop in the last month, has hidden the, the underlying weakness of the UK market. I think the trouble with the UK is that it's got so many sectors which have been basically been blown up by regulatory or government diktat. For example, if you want to invest in banks, well, the US banks have been the place to be. Post-financial crisis, the UK banks were crippled by government and regulators, and they've been dozen investors. The same with um, insurance companies. Solvency rules have crippled them, whereas actually the US insurance companies have done extremely well. And now the political impetus is to try and cripple the energy companies, which means, of course, that you'll want to invest in Exxon and Chevron and, and the Canadian companies rather than the UK. So I do think that the underlying UK market is not, uh, it's basically, it's the props of the UK market are being knocked away one by one. So I have no confidence until I proved otherwise, that the UK market is going to turn into a long-term outperformer. Finally, on this particular point, do you think there's a risk that we will get what we used to call an old-fashioned sterling crisis? I mean, sterling has come down a long way from 135 to, or thereabouts, to 115, around that sort of level. Do you think that's a likelihood if we do get inflation, as the Bank of England says, you know, 15% or something? It's going to create some issues, is it not? Well, um, the sterling crisis came from in, in an era of fixed exchange rates or you know, the exchange rate mechanism. So nowadays, they move steadily over time. So I think, yes, we're already in a turning crisis. I don't believe that um, the scaremongering on inflation and on energy prices is correct. I think we've seen by far and away the worst of energy prices. I think they'll start to come down. And the fact that energy prices, the price of gas and electricity has fallen by a third this week has actually sort of rather vindicated me. And I don't think inflation is going to get anywhere near the 18% that those uh, wonks at City seem to be talking about, all the Goldman Sachs people uh, talking about. I think we are pretty close to the peak. But actually, and as the US shows, it's not just about getting your peak and getting it to come down. It's about the determination to get it down and keeping it down. And I think for that, actually, the time has come from, frankly, for a new governor of the Bank of England. You know, I just think that uh, Bailey should be chucked out of the sixth floor, whatever they do to governors of the Bank of England, and replaced <laughs> by somebody who does a proper job. Yeah. I think I know one or two people who, who share that view, fair to say. But uh... No doubt he'll have his defenders. I don't know if he'll ever come on this particular podcast to make his Name me one. Name me one defender. I'm going to pass on that one. And I'm going to move on and talk about what's been happening in the investment trust sector in a bit more detail about the news this week. So first of all, we've had some index changes, uh, fairly uh, routine, but good to see FNC has gone back into the FTSE 100. Uh, it's a bit like one of those football clubs, Nottingham Forest or something, which was, has always been in the FTSE 100 index and has now managed to get back in there. I think FNC is a bit like the old Alliance Trust. Never does well enough for you to feel happy, but never does badly enough for you to give up on it. It just sort of seems to sort of muddle along in an okay sort of way. And uh, I can't say I'm a great fan. I think that uh, it's not something I would invest in personally, but I can understand why as a one-stop shop, it suits a lot of investors. Yeah. We've talked a lot about that in the past, the podcast about these generalist trusts and whether they are still relevant in the current market environment where you can do a lot for yourself with passive funds and so on. Okay, what else have we seen changes in the index? Well, we've seen a couple of the, uh, not surprisingly, renewable energy trusts, uh, Bluefield Solar and Next Energy, join the FTSE 250 along with 24 Income Fund. And at the bottom of the 250, we've seen, not surprisingly also, perhaps the departure of uh, Chrysalis, which has obviously had some very well publicised problems this year. 
Um, I don't like. To, well, actually, I do like to crow every now and then. But I've been a persistent critic of Chrysalis right from the start. I, I never thought they knew what they were doing, and I think that their problems and incompetence has dragged down the whole private equity sector. But I'm sure you'll hear more about that later. But uh, I've really got in for Chrysalis, and always have. <laughs> But I mean, there's a couple of pieces of news which are worth mentioning. The STCL is um, raising more money and uh, it's encouraging, but there's been a bit of a dearth of fundraising uh, recently. Second is two of the investment trust world's most eccentric uh, geniuses are retiring. And it's all, that's a sort of a bit of a pity. And Max Ward is uh, retiring and independent and he's passing his portfolio over to Monk's Investment Trust. It's interesting that uh, Monk's is choosing to keep half his investments, including his UK house builders. Very interesting comments, but I'm sure that that'll be well managed. And Dan Nichols at uh, Jupiter is taking over from Simon Knott. And Dan Nichols is, is, you know, he's certainly not a corporate man. I think he's a smart guy. He's almost certainly a pretty good choice. I mean, I've known Simon Knott since university, and he was a, a chess-playing genius. And, you know, Simon Knott just had his own views and did what he did. And actually, you know, he just, when you just spoke to him, you, you never gave the impression of listening to a word you said, which might have been one of his greatest strengths. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're actually right. It came from a family of, of uh, likable eccentrics. Yeah. So that's how uh, he was managing your trust called rights uh, and issues investment trust. And he's done pretty well over 30 years. He's got a pretty good record. As you say, completely kind of off the radar of most investors. But the- what's, what's greatest about Simon Knott and rights and issues is that he, he sort of blew up in the financial crisis when he had banks, but he turned it back round again. His ability to recover and his record of recovering from near disaster is highly commendable. And that's what I would remember him for. So, I mean, raise an interesting question there about the investment trust sector. I mean, you've got, as you say, two of these uh, trusts, both run by individuals, essentially, without a huge kind of backing from a large fund management group. But we're always hearing that it's actually very difficult to start new investment trusts. So, you know, chances are we won't be seeing the like of those kind of trusts coming through again, replacements for Simon Knott or, uh, or a Max Ward. Uh, what would you think about that? I think it would be a pity, but I hope there's still uh, room for eccentric geniuses to flourish in the investment trust world. And uh, you know, at Investic Asset Management, we had that in Alistair Mundy. And uh, he was just about tolerated by Investic Asset Management, but basically he wasn't really corporate enough for, for them. And he was tolerated rather than liked. And he was, you know, he's a, a great investor. And I think it's a great loss to the sector that uh, he disappeared. But I hope that, that the city doesn't become so corporatist that there isn't room for the eccentric geniuses to flourish in the future. Yeah, well, I hope so too. I mean, the loss of the Independent Investment Trust, I mean, his history is quite interesting. It goes back to Keynes and, and thing back in the 1920s. He was uh, involved in running it for a while. And uh, I'm not sure what Frugal McDougall, the chairman, is going to do. I expect he's going to retire, but I don't know. <laughs> Indeed. The fantastic world of Scottish Investment Trust goings on. In terms of the fundraising, you mentioned uh, SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, ticker SEIT. It's obviously trading at a premium. That's uh, one reason why they're able to do this £100 million placing. Uh, how do you think that will go? And I mean, the renewable energy stocks on the whole have done pretty well so far this year, but presumably they're not they're not going to be immune from what's happening in the energy markets more widely. No, but um, I mean, they say they've got a long list of projects to invest in with good rates of return, and I've no doubt they have. So um, I expect that investors will respond to that. Uh, projects with good rates of return probably if not inflation, directly inflation-linked, uh, certainly inflation-connected. But I think there's a longer-term story investment trust, which needs a reminder, is that actually in the FTSE index, the 100 and 250, the investment trusts are rising slowly. I think there were times in the past there wasn't a single investment trust in the FTSE 100. And now what's the number about to be? Is it five or something? 
four, I think it is, but yeah, yeah four or five, yeah. And I, I think this number is going to go on upwards. And I, you know, I can see a time, maybe it's a 10 years time when there might be 15 investment trusts in the, in the FTSE 100. Back to the longer term, probably long after you and I are gone, you know, the FTSE 100 might have a majority of investment trusts. But I think that's the way it's going, because I think that private investors are seeing investment trusts as a good place to invest. Now, because of widening discounts and because of growth orientation, that hasn't been true this year. But I think the long term story will prove to be intact. Well, I hope that's right. Yeah, of course I do from uh, doing what I do. But it's a, it's a first real test, I guess, of this trend of increasing retail investor participation in investment trusts. This year is going to be a real test because the investment trust sector has done worse than the UK market, for example, whereas in the pandemic, everything went down together briefly before coming back. So it's a test of whether people stick the course and, and continue to um, appreciate the strength of investment trusts and that the discount is, is actually part of the story. But as a long-term investor, it's something you've got to live with. Yeah. Fear and greed will dominate sentiment as much as ever. At the moment, people are fearful and, you know, that, uh, and the media is throwing every piece of bad news it can at the world. But you know what? At some point, the markets will turn around more decisively upwards. People will start making money and then greed will overtake fear again. And I, what I suspect is that uh, private investors will do what they've always done, which is tends to be sort of sell at the low and buy at the high. But, you know, there was evidence, a lot of evidence in the US that, that is slowly changing. I think there's evidence in the UK it's slowly changing. I think people are much more prepared to ride out the difficult times now than they were in the past. And so I hope there'll be less tendency for them to be sort of drawn in when the market is racing away. People always like to wait and wait and wait and then buy investment trusts like any other shares, you know, uh, with today's news at yesterday's prices, but you know it's just never, it never works. It never works. I mean, as you're no longer employed by a financial firm, I mean, can you um, give us any indication as to what kind of things, if anything, you've been doing this year with your own uh, money, which your own substantial fortune you've accumulated over, over over many years in the city? I've been doing not very much. I suppose I've made the sort of classic mistakes. And I've invested a bit here, and I think I, I sold a bit last year. What tends to happen is you sell a bit, and then you sell a bit more. And then you sell a bit more as prices rise, and then the prices go on rising. So you hold off selling while the price goes up by another third. And then, of course, it comes straight back down again. So you know, the sales I made last year, I'm not sure I'm in the money on those sales I made last year yet. I, I despite what's happened to the market, yeah. Despite <laughs> what's happened to the market, because I think yeah. I sell them all a bit too early, as is human nature. So if, if anyone's in that position, don't worry, we're all in the, in the same boat. Um, and of course, the trouble is, it's always tempting to make changes, but I've always found that about... Half the portfolio changes I make work, and the other half don't. The best thing to do is to, um, when you've sold them um, and they don't work, is to buy them back. Actually, I did that with 3i. I was a bit worried about the importance and the vulnerability of action in the 3i uh, share price. So I halved my holding. Then I realized, actually, 3i's weren't stupid. They knew what they were doing. The valuation team was pretty aggressive, and the share price came back. So I then started buying them back again. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> something I very, very rarely do. But there's a tendency among investors to always assume that management are blind to the risks and the uncertainties and don't know what they're doing, particularly in the private equity sphere, I think. But uh, you know what? Yes, they are. You know, that uh, they probably know more than you or I do. Occasionally, we can get an insight that something's an absolute turkey, like chrysalis. But most of the time, the market is probably knows more than we do. And we can leave it to the experts. 
It's a comforting thought. Before I let you go, Max, I have to ask you about Taylor Maritime Investments has made an answer this week. They're going to make a proposal to acquire a company called Grindrod Shipping. Is it Grindrod or Grindrod? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And of course, Taylor Maritime Investments is one of these couple or so of uh, investment trust in shipping, which of course uh, takes us back to some of the glory days of the investment trust world many decades ago when there were shipping trusts. So what do you think about the shipping trusts? I mean, obviously, Taylor Maritime Investors had a rather unusual history because it's performed extraordinarily well, and yet it's uh, still trading at quite a big discount. So what, what do you think the story is there? I think it's very interesting um, that shipping has found its way back into stock market. But I think what's more interesting is what it says about investment trusts. Investment trusts do continue to find new ways of packaging assets for the private investor. And in the past, it went down a number of blind alleys. For example, remember the Lloyd's Insurance Trusts. Actually, I suspect that was killed off by regulation much more than it was killed off by bad practice. All the, the trusts all did rather well. It's rather a good model. But then along came the, the EU and changed the rules. And, you know, the underwriting on the one hand, investment on the other hand model uh, ceased to work. But, you know, the, with shipping, we've got a, a branch into a new area, although I'm sceptical about the song companies. And I do think that's a very positive area. Uh, royalties on songs, another uh, uh, very effective way to use the closed end vehicles. And I'm sure that the world will come up with new ideas of using investment trusts. Not too many, because, you know, I think these new ideas, they need a bit of testing in the market. You know, does it really work before you invest? I remember right at the start when there were two infrastructure trusts were launched. I think one was HSBC uh, Infrastructure and now Hickel, and the other was 3i. And I was sort of rather sceptical. I thought it might be equity risk for bond-like returns. And when they survived 2008, 2009 so well, I thought, you know, you know what? I was wrong. They've stood the test of difficult markets. This is time to plough in. And so it's proven. And I think that... Uh, on the one hand, you don't want to charge into new ideas too quickly because you need, do need them to be seasoned and be proven by time. But on, this, on the other hand, you know, I think we should welcome the widening of the sector to new areas. It's very important and, uh, and very helpful to investors in general. And that, by that, I mean not just the investors in the trust, but the investors, multi-asset investors who need alternatives to balance the risk elsewhere in the portfolio. But I think it's generally uh, helpful to the whole you know, UK private sector, the fact that you can actually package these assets and sell them to investors and encourages the domestic market. So that was Max King, formerly a fund manager at Investec and now a columnist for Money Week, as upbeat and as opinionated as ever. Before we go on to talk to Andrew Lister in more detail about what's been happening in the private equity sector, i just fill out a couple more details on a couple of the things we've talked about so far. So SDCL, Energy Efficiency Income, ticker SEIT, as I said, is looking to raise 100 million sterling through a non-preemptive placing uh, with an accelerated book build and looking to have a strike price somewhere between 113p and 117p. That book build will close uh, at 3pm on Tuesday uh, this coming week uh, at the latest there's also a retail offering. So if you have an account at one of the big platforms, you'll probably hear about that particular offer. And the proceeds will be used to fund a series of investments. The management have identified £175 million pipeline of follow-on investments, including the previously announced £100 million acquisition of United Utilities Renewable Energy. At this point, the trust will have committed nearly all its available cash uh, and substantially used up its £145 million credit facility. Investors in the placing will be eligible to receive the second interim dividend in relation to the year ending 
31st of March, but not the one that has already been declared. Uh, and that second dividend is going to be declared in November. So there's obviously an issue here about uh, future financing of this particular trust, which, however, continues to trade at a premium uh, in contrast to some of the other trusts which are in the same energy efficiency bucket. We talked about Rights and Issues Investment Trust, ticker RIII, managed by Simon Knott. And what's happening there, the circular proposing the tender offer for up to 10% of the share capital uh, is going to be posted to shareholders and it's going to open on the 2nd of September. So in other words, it opened yesterday uh, and will close on the 23rd of September. This is all part of the process by which, as Max was saying, manager of the trust is going to pass to Dan Nichols, who is now working for Jupiter Asset Management, uh, a manager with a, a good strong record in uh, smaller company equity investment. As for Taylor Maritime Investments, ticker TMI, as we discussed, it submitted a non-binding indicative proposal to acquire Grindrod Shipping on the 25th of August. It already owns about 26% of the company, and it's offering a price at $21 a share, plus a special $5 special dividend to the shareholders in Grindrod, making the aggregate value $26 per share. And that's going to be financed by existing cash debt and the proposed special dividend, which obviously in respect of its own 25% shareholding. So this is an interesting development. The deal, if it goes through, will have a significantly increase the size of Taylor Maritime. It currently has net assets of around $600 million, uh, and this uh, transaction will effectively add around another $295 million of assets to the trust. And so therefore, again, there's issues over the potential future funding of this deal. In terms of results, we didn't mention BBI Global Infrastructure, ticker BBGI. Uh, they announced their interim results for the six months to 30th of June, during which time the NAV per share was up by 6.5% to 149.8p. The larger part of that increase was driven by uh, higher actual inflation and upward revisions to two-year forecasts. The weighted average discount rate uh, they use to value the their portfolio is being maintained at 6.55%. But dividend cover is uh, good at two times, and it's uh, the trust has reaffirmed this dividend target of paying 7.48p for 2022, uh, rising uh, in the subsequent two years as well. The, the shares trade on a premium, but it has come off a little bit in uh, in recent weeks. And finally, it's worth mentioning perhaps the Target Healthcare REIT, uh, ticker THRL. It had earlier announced that it was actually seeking to reallocate nine homes of those in its property portfolio of healthcare properties. It was planning to reallocate them to six alternative operators uh, based on the shortfall in rents that had been coming from these particular properties. And the idea then was that it would alleviate the impact on recent rent collection, which had fallen to 90% in uh, Q2 2022. However, since then, they've reached an agreement with the incumbent tenant in seven of these homes which will allow them to remain as tenant and operator of the healthcare properties. In part of that deal, they have achieved a full settlement of all their outstanding net arrears to the 30th of June, which has resulted in the rent collection proportion rising to 94% for the second quarter. So that is a positive development in one sense. They're managing to get uh, some of the money which they were owed for rental back. 
A reminder now that for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, if you're interested in all the announcements this week, and to be honest, there have been only a, a very limited number by contrast with most weeks, you can find our comprehensive list of all the announcements on the Moneymakers website. This week also, we have a profile of the Diverse Income Trust, as well as some of my comments on the developments that we've seen this week. I have to say that I'm somewhat less upbeat than uh, Max King. And we will have to see who's right about that. The next few days promising to be very important for the UK with the appointment of a new Prime Minister and we will find out soon enough how many of her plans she will be able to implement as we go into what looks like being a very tricky autumn period. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, now we're going to switch attention to the private equity asset class and I'm pleased to be joined today by Andrew Lister, who is Head of Closed End Fund Strategies at uh, Aberdeen, the uh, well-known investment management house. Andrew, perhaps you'd kick off by telling us exactly uh, what you do with that uh, rather grand-sounding title. You have a fund that invests in private ventures, so perhaps you could just explain what that is, first of all, before we uh, go on to Yeah, that's right, Jonathan. So we invest as a team globally in listed investment companies. And certainly the bulk of our AUM at the moment is focused on private markets generally. So private equity, private credit, and then a little bit of exposure to the likes of real estate and infrastructure. Um, We can also buy asset managers, so the kind of bulge bracket, KKRs, Polo, Partners Group, all of which combined in a portfolio we offer to clients to kind of liquid exposure to private markets, which are obviously a talking point at the moment. And, um, you know, we think better than the discounts on these listed vehicles reflect. Well, that's, I think, the issue we need to talk about, really. But uh, let's kick off then by saying, you know, what's the experience been like this? Obviously, we know there's been a big sell-off in listed markets for all the reasons we've talked about, the war in Ukraine, rising interest rates, the the Fed and so on, inflation getting ahead of itself. So uh, what's been the experience in private markets generally before we look at uh, private equity in particular and the investment trust there? Uh, I mean, it's been a tough period for all kinds of private market, essentially, I think it's fair to say. Would that be right? I think actually it's been better than perceived because if you think of the asset classes that I just described, private equity certainly has been the most impacted, I would say, and anything listed has been impacted doubly or, or more because of the fact that it's listed. But A lot of the other private market asset classes uh, have actually been performing very well. So private credit is largely floating rate and quite high yield. Uh, And obviously, that combination has been quite attractive to investors and quite defensive in a rising rate environment. Uh, And then if you lump in infrastructure and real estate together, in NAV terms at least, those are asset classes that have been performing very well this year uh, and largely in positive territory and again, you know, if you're looking at listed vehicles, the experience may have been somewhat different, but certainly in NAV terms, in terms of the fundamental performance of infrastructure investments, private credit investments, real estate investments, it's actually been quite good. So they're doing what you would hope. But again, we come back to this point that when you list something, you, you pick up some of the beta of public markets, which can give you a different experience in the short term. In other words, what happens in the public markets is, is going to have an influence on the, the valuations and the prices of listed private uh, equity and other kind of private closed-end fund. Yeah. Let's get into that then, shall we? Are you telling me that that uh, experience of 
you know, widening discounts that we've seen, let's just take private equity for a moment, enlisted private equity. Are you saying that that is wrong or are you saying that it's just uh, uh, the result of the nature of the vehicle? In other words, is it justified or is it not justified? And if not, why? I think that it's been very indiscriminate and I think that discounts are far too wide when one considers the fundamentals. But I also think that, you know, the truth lies somewhere in between. So the defining aspect of investing in these private equity investment trusts, investment companies this year has been that the NAVs have been appreciating whilst the share prices have been declining very sharply. The share prices are reflecting a whole host of concerns, some of which predate Russia, Ukraine, higher interest rates, you know, everything that's happened this year to dampen risk appetite, but also a lot of things that are tied up to those factors, uh, and particularly a higher cost of capital, which people translate into lower returns for private equity and falling NAVs, perhaps because of what has happened in public markets and what higher interest rates imply for a approach to investing that employs some leverage. So I think there's been an overreaction. That's something that's happened many times before in private equity. Um, another reason for that is that people simply don't feel comfortable predicting what the NAVs are. You know, if you look at a traditional equity income trust, you're going to get a daily NAV. For private equity, you're going to get a quarterly NAV with possibly a one or two month lag. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of skepticism around what's actually happening in private equity. But I think that if you're willing to roll up your sleeves, do some homework, make some assumptions, then you can see through that noise. And when you look through that noise, you know, we think there's pretty terrific value out there in, in this part of the investment trust universe. Well, let's just stick for the moment with that issue about the NAVs. I mean, one of the issues obviously is that there is a lag in the reporting of NAVs in listed private equity trusts. They come out, uh, as you say, other equities are a sort of value of mark to market every day. But uh, there's a lag between the reporting NAV and in some cases, you know, it's quite significant. I mean, there are private equity trusts that are still some haven't got up to their March NAVs kind of thing. Do you think they're doing enough, first of all? I mean, that just goes with the territory, right? Valuing these private investments is always uh, takes time and there's lots of different ways of doing it. Is that inevitable or is there actually more that the, the listed private equity trusts could do to try and instill more confidence amongst investors that when they see an NAV, it's actually closer to reality than uh, it might otherwise be? I think it, it's a very good question because look, there is there is a range of timing differences between fund management houses. So if you look at something like Princess Private Equity, they would come out with a fairly timely monthly NAV. If you look at some of the other longer ones, you are talking about many months. Oakley Capital, which is one of our investments, has just moved to quarterly NAVs from semi-annual. So I think everyone's kind of doing the best they can at the moment. If you look at particularly volatile markets, so we did see during COVID that Pantheon, for example, did put in place a provision to say, look, we know the NAV is going to be lower. Um, we're going to put in a provision. I think at the time it was about 6 or 7%. Well, that's really in extremis. So I think they're doing what is normal for the industry. It's very difficult for them, and we have pushed them on this, to give any kind of guidance that says, you know, look, our NAV is at March, but if you were to real-time it based on our sector exposure or company exposure, then it might look a little bit like this. You know, the compliance fraternity would be very averse to any kind of guidance like that. But that's the kind of work that we do and we can do to say, well, 
if your portfolio is comprised of cash and then your sector exposure maybe because of the brisk pace of IPOs last year you've got some listed exposure then you can get to a number which looks you know more intelligible than just you know saying well we don't know what the NAV is because it hasn't been struck since March so the companies are doing i think as much as they can but as i say if you if you're willing to do a little bit of homework then you can get to you know i think a sensible estimate of what for example a worst case might be at the moment and even when we calculate what might be a worst case scenario for some of these companies we still get them to be trading at discounts that are much wider than their fundamentals warrant I mean, obviously, you said that different trusts do it in different ways. How important is it that the valuation method is uh, transparent? And how important is it it's actually a case of marking your own homework sort of thing? Is that, uh, is that a concern for you? I would say it's not so much a concern. It's definitely an issue, but it, it's not one that concerns us. I mean, there are actually very stringent guidelines around private equity valuations. They're not always done exactly as you choose, but we do believe that they are done well and if anything, conservatively. So we do particularly like to um, focus on those trusts that have a history of conservative NAV marking, if you like. And the logical next question will be, well, how do you determine that? And I think the most obvious way is to say, well, does a fund, does a manager have a track record of realising investments at a premium to their carrying value? And that is, you know, for me, the single best way to prove that, you know, this, this is not an NAV that's outlandishly out of date or unwarranted, unjustified, and a level at which the assets couldn't be realised. And it's been really telling year to date that managers have still been able to sell assets and they've generally been able to do those at quite significant premiums to where those NAVs are. So, you know, we take comfort from that. There have been some meaningful realisations. You know, companies like 3i Group, Oakley, HG have all been making realisations year to date and they've been at material premiums to those NAVs. So you could argue that actually the discounts are even wider if you think that more realisations continue to happen. But but they've certainly slowed, but they're still happening at a premium to NAV. There are some, uh, unfortunately, rather cynical people out there who say that one of the things that concerns them is when one private equity firm sells an asset to another private equity firm, they they realise it and they have a value therefore put on it. But there may be a a sort of element of gaming around that. Uh, Would you ever agree with that criticism? I can understand where that criticism comes from. I think it takes quite an extreme level of cynicism to believe that this kind of multi-trillion dollar industry is is just a, a giant Ponzi scheme, which you do from time to time hear people suggest. I think if you look at the numbers, they paint a very different picture, which is that, you know, there's no reason one private equity investor can't sell an asset to another. And both of them make a very handsome gain because Different managers have different views as to the prospects for businesses. Quite often, it's a little bit like a small cap, mid cap, large cap fund where, you know, investors, GPs, private equity managers focus on smaller companies or mid-sized companies. And so they're only really selling to a manager once it's reached their kind of size threshold. And often it's because a fund is getting towards the end of a life or is in a defined realization period which, you know, one of the strengths of these listed vehicles is that they don't necessarily have those constraints. But if you're managing a traditional seven-year private equity fund, you have to sell at some point. And it may still be a very attractive company, and that may make private equity the logical buyer again. 
Uh, so it doesn't concern us unduly, but it is certainly an easy dig at the industry. Of course, there's also another issue which you always hear come up in this context, which is about the fees. And in case of uh, those uh, private equity trusts which are investing in other funds, you have theoretically the issue of fees on fees and so on. Of the trusts you look, I mean, do you actually invest in any of these investment trusts that actually are funder funds as opposed to uh, making direct investments? And if so, how do you think about that issue of fee on fees on fees? Well, this is an easier one to answer because you have the number to hand. You know, you can look at the, the KID document or the PRIPS document. It's certainly one of the reasons that the discounts are so wide because that does put a lot of investors off. This notion that, you know, if you take out 4 or 5% costs, then how can you ever outperform public markets on a, on a net basis? A couple of things on that is that, firstly, a proportion of that 4 or 5%, if that's the kind of number you see, is going to be carried interest, so the performance fee element, which is only paid to a manager when they outperform. And it's usually an 8% annualised hurdle or thereabouts. So unless you are achieving an 8% annualised return, you're not going to pay that carried interest element. And then on the management fee element, which is the more fixed one, you know, what I would say and what private equity managers would say would be that this is a very active style of investment, you know, possibly the most active. You're talking about buying generally controlling stakes in companies and then really taking control of the future of that company, the management and the direction of that company in a very, very hands-on way. So private equity is not an approach that can be applied for 40 or 50 basis points well. So I think our view is always pragmatic that if you get what you pay for, then, you know, that's fine. If you have an asset that is underperforming and you're still paying those kind of fees, then you know there's some very stern questions to be asked of the manager. But I think over the long run, what private equity has shown is that it is capable of outperforming public markets despite the fees. So we don't see the fees coming down particularly, but we do see them very, very aggressively reflected in these discounts. So I think the way we view it is that you know we possibly would never pay a premium for any of these given the fee burden. But certainly you're embedding or the market has embedded several, several, you know, many years of fees in the kind of level of discount that you're seeing. And I think that's reflected in what you were saying, that the fund of fund structures are trading at wider discounts than the direct funds. So it's certainly consistent with that. Well, if we look at what's happened to discounts in the uh, listed private equity trust this year, you're obviously right. I mean, we've got the growth capital trusts who are way, way down and there's obviously been quite a lot of publicity around Chrysalis and its performance fee and so on. But the same going for Shehalian Fund, the Bailey Gifford one at one extreme, and then you've got the funder funds and then you've got some of the other funds. Let's talk about some of the trusts that you do own. You mentioned a couple of them already. I picked out Oakley Capital and HG, which have both been around for some time. What is the attraction of those? I mean, you're not investing in those on the basis of discounts, presumably. You're investing on the basis of the underlying returns. How big a factor has the discount history actually been in your selection process for those two, shall we say? I think, uh, if we start with Oakley, how preferred holdings are ones that don't deserve to trade at a discount but do. Uh, and so where you're getting value and growth, um, we never want to buy a portfolio that's underperforming because we think the main part of the return is always going to be your NAV return. And Oakley has proved that in spades. It's been a very strong performer at an NAV level, and yet that hasn't been reflected in the discount. 
So every time OD comes out with a good piece of news, a good NAV, I mean, it's having a fantastic year so far in 2022. I think at the end of June, its NAV was up 17% for the half year. So really bucking the trend in markets at large. It's got some very exciting assets, which are growing very quickly. It's got a strong balance sheet, a very good manager, closely aligned through ownership of the listed vehicle itself. And you know we know that they are as frustrated as us at the discount. So they have been buying back shares and continue to do so. They've introduced a dividend policy, and yet you can still buy those shares well over a 30% discount to NAV. And you know, we just think that's an anomaly. And it can only be explained by all of those things that we've discussed already, which we think are valid concerns, some of them. Oakley do not shy away from addressing them very directly. But we think if you look at what a private equity investor would pay for a secondary interest where you buy a, a part of a private, private fund, it definitely wouldn't be anywhere like the valuation that the listed vehicle is trading. So we think that's something that corrects over time as Oakley continue to come out with decent news. They've been very active in investing this year, so they're making more deals from a significant cash pile in these weak markets. So it's a very, you mentioned Chrysalis and you know others who've found themselves in a position where they can't really continue investing. And that's the last position you want to find yourself in is where you're kind of forced into a position where you can't keep investing. And then HG, as you say, has been around for a very long time. I think the other unusual thing about these discounts is these are very long-standing vehicles that have done very well over a very long period of time. And quite often it's the kind of new thing that's been issued amongst a lot of excitement that then crashes and trades at discounts of this level, but it's not the case. So HG's been doing a, a fantastic job of investing in very defensive, dull software companies with very, very consistent growth, achieved the feat that you know most of these companies aspire to last year, which was to get to NAV and start issuing stock and start growing again, but you know has definitely been caught up with the sell-off um, and certainly branded as being a bit techy in the kind of growth value switch, which we think is unjustified and now you know available to buy at, a, at an attractive discount for a large, liquid, extremely well-established vehicle with a fantastic track record. And uh, I should also mention 3i. I mean, you're an investor in 3i, which obviously has changed a lot from, from what it used to be in the old days. And it's had this remarkable success with one company in particular, which is though in retailing. And retailing has been a bit of a difficult area or becoming a very difficult area. Uh, what are your views on, uh, on 3i and uh, how long have you held that? That's been in and out of the portfolio over the last four years. But at the moment, it's, it's our largest holding. It won't surprise you to hear that when it's been aggressively valued, and there's a lot of blue sky out there, and it's trading at a substantial premium. That has been the kind of time when we may not have owned it. But if you look at the situation today, it's about as different from that as it's possible to be. You know, So again, a very well-established company with an excellent management team, extremely well aligned, and we think a great portfolio. And we think despite the fact it's a FTSE 100 company, so it's kind of, you know, it's there for everyone to see. It's got phenomenal disclosure we think quite often misunderstood. So we hear people who are concerned about the single stock risk of, of action, which, as you mentioned, is a, is a European and mainland European discount retailer. We think that's one of the major selling points. You know, this is a cost of living crisis and, and their largest asset is a discount retailer, which helps people save money on a lot of items that would go into your weekly shops. We think that's a very defensive place to be. And actually, 
it's unusual that the listed peers for action, which are mostly based in the US, are all in positive territory year to date. So you don't even have that question mark over the listed peers have gone down. How can the valuation of, of action still be up? The listed peers for action are actually making ground because of, I think, this realisation that value for money, which is the mega trend that the 3AI are playing there, is something that you know should do really well in this kind of environment. I mean, there have been issues around Walmart and Target and so on in the States. But uh, as you say, in relative terms, at least that's been some comfort, I guess. Finally, I might mention this context. Uh, you have a holding in Intermediate Capital Group. What's the story there and, and uh, what's been your experience with that one? And where do you think that one's going? So again, it's one of our larger holdings. I think, you know, there is a recurring theme here that these companies, 3i Group, Intermediate Capital, they're both very large companies compared to investment trusts. But there's a double-edged sword that when you have these kind of passive flows in the kind of market, you know, you can see these companies impacted materially. Intermediate Capital Group is a diversified private markets manager, but it certainly has a skew towards private credit. And as I said at the outset, you know, we think private credit is a great asset class at the moment. It's performed very resiliently. You get floating rates of interest. So as interest rates climb, your returns improve. For a manager in that asset class, we think that means that you're going to continue to see strong demand from clients. And you know, we've done the same with Intermediate Capital Group as we do with all our holdings in a period of volatility like this. You know, We just continually go back and check and check and check the fundamentals. And we've probably had more meetings with management of that company this year than, than in any prior year. And the story is really the same, that, look, this is a long-term growth story. More people are going to want exposure to private markets in the future than in the past. And we haven't seen any meaningful disruption to their business, despite everything that's been going on. Um, but the fact that they're based in Europe, the fact that they're listed in London, everything that's gone on in the UK with Sterling as well, means that it's now an incredibly cheap company. And if you look at those two very large holdings that we have, Intermediate Capital and, and 3i Group, you're also getting a very attractive dividend off both of them. So both of them will be paying yields of over 4%. And we think that, you know, whether interest rates are one and a half or three, it's still nice to get a 4% yield from your equity investments. And management of both companies are, are being very committed to those being progressive dividends. So if you want to single out a kind of metric that indicates that these companies are healthy, you know, 3i and, and Intermediate Capital Group are two companies that both increased their dividends materially in the last year, despite everything that's going on in markets. So that this is, you know, our reading of that is management looking into the portfolio, looking into the business and saying, you know, we're, we're comfortable with the growth. We don't think this derails what we're doing and we're comfortable increasing the dividends, therefore. And, and these are not small increases, I think, you know, order of magnitude, kind of 20%. So I'll put you on the spot a little bit, perhaps, but none of us knows exactly how the next year is going to pan out. There's so many variables out there at the moment in terms of particularly the war in Ukraine, but also possible issues around China and COVID and what exactly are governments and central banks going to do. So it's, it looks like it could be quite a tough period. So what are the realistic prospects, therefore, that private equity trusts can both deliver positive absolute returns and then also get the benefit of a narrowing discount? Most of these trusts have always traded a discount ever since the global financial crisis. They're probably not going to go back to par anytime soon, unless it's HD or 3i, which have managed to do that. So what do you think on those two elements? Number one, absolute returns. Number two, discount narrowing. What are the, what are the realistic options, would you say? 
So I think they're going to continue. You know, I'm not suggesting there's any great breakaway where they stop being correlated to the rest of public markets. If public markets continue to go down and remain volatile, they will go down and, and be volatile themselves. But I think if your view is that at some point we get through this, that people just get more comfortable with higher rates, that we don't see rates in the kind of scary level of 4 or 5%, then most of these companies look like they're offering really good asymmetric returns. And that comes from the combination of the discount and the fundamentals. So I think if we get to the year end without markets being materially weaker, then people will be looking back at 2022 as another year of trouble for markets, but where private equity actually proved that it does something differently. A little bit of belief and confidence comes back into the NAVs. If we continue to get realisations of premiums to those NAVs, then, then it doesn't take an awful lot for people to come back to the space and say, well, actually, look, you know, being able to buy these things at 40% discounts to NAV, you know, what a great opportunity that was with hindsight. It's that kind of investment. So I'm a big believer in uh, averaging in and diversification. And I just say that, you know, if it is a space you're looking at, then for sure tread carefully, but certainly somewhere you should have some exposure to if your investment horizon is anything over a few years because um, the valuations that we see at the moment, as I say, are, are kind of second only to the, the financial crisis. And yet these companies, we think, are in much better shape than they were going into the financial crisis. And you, you've seen that recently with a lot of these companies going out and strengthening their balance sheets further, increasing the, the size of their borrowing facilities. And, you know, I think that's really prudent. So, you know, we invest cautiously, but knowing that under the right circumstances, these are companies that can still generate very significant returns. That was Andrew Lister, Head of Closed End Fund Strategies at Aberdeen. That brings us to the end of the podcast. I look forward to having your company again next week when we will be entering into a new political phase in the UK. And ahead of us lies what will certainly be an interesting but also potentially quite a dramatic final four months of the year. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.